Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema, both in front of and behind the camera, by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. We highly recommend that you visit their site to discover a slew of great podcasts, such as the music-loving show Surface Noise. Also, Modern Superior now has a Patreon page, so if you want to support the network and the various podcasts on it, you can do that for as little as $2 a month and get access to a whole bunch of great Patreon perks. You can find Changing Reels on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're on iTunes, we would love it if you stop by, give us a rate. The more ratings that we get, the further our conversations on diversity can go. So we'd greatly appreciate that. With all those fine plugs out of the way, Andrew, how are you doing today? In terms of my own uh, personal well-being, didn't have to go to the hospital between this podcast and the last, so I'm already starting on a good physical front. Plus, a bit later on, we get to talk about literally one of my favorite things ever. So uh, all in all, starting on a much higher note than usual. How about yourself? It's, you know, it's been kind of an up and down few days. Went to a Jays game. I usually try to get to like one baseball game per year. You know, the Jays lost, but it was a, a fun outing. And then had to do some uh, do-it-yourself plumbing when I got home from the Jays game. So that wasn't too fun, but put a little notch on my belt in terms of was able to unclog a toilet. So that's always a bonus. You got your uh, sleeves rolled up experience in there. At least, you know, a little bit, show that you can do the home mechanism thing. It's actually one of the reasons I uh, opted not to own a home. Working in fire claims insurance for about four years, too many things can go wrong with a home. I'm, I'm happy in a smaller space with my cats, but to each their own. There's always stuff with home ownership that's just going crazy, and you have to do that. Do you want to call a plumber, or do you want to just run to Rona and see if you can find the tools to save yourself some money? So home ownership is, especially with the market the way it is, but that's another show altogether. That's a different <laughs> podcast. We could have a, a, a sort of podcast on the price of homes right now, and is it really worth it? Well, and that's the thing, considering that the uh, movie we're going to be talking about later is a sequel to a movie having a lot to do with economics, and I won't say that the sequel is very much to do with economics, but if we could find some way to tie in the perils of home ownership with plumbing and then Magic Mike XXL, maybe via his furniture business? I don't know, maybe we got a uh, podcast idea for some aspiring listener out there. Listeners, come up with uh, the connections. Now, each episode, we like to start off by highlighting two short films that caught our attention. If you stop by modernsuperior.com, we'll have links to the short films that we discuss in our short notes, so you'll be able to watch them at your leisure and also see if you agree with our takes on them. So, Andrew, which short do you have for the viewers this week? I'm actually going to have probably the lowest emotional point as a counterbalance to the enthusiasm I am going to show later, um, but I picked a short documentary, Return to High Chaparral, directed by David Freed. Simple premise with a lot of complex geopolitical implications therein. There is a ranch that is run basically kind of like a fake western place in Sweden, and the owner there, who charmingly refers to himself as the mayor of the town, I, I did like that little bit of of lightness and an otherwise dark short. He opens up the farm to take in some Syrian refugees because of the ongoing crisis there. What we get is kind of a contrast between the media presentation 
of the Syrian crisis as it's going on in the background in televisions and so on with the relative peace and comfort of the fake western town. What I thought was a very subtle and sly dig at how the United States especially has presented Westerns over the years. Recently, we had the Magnificent Seven remake, which I did ultimately enjoy. And one of the reasons was that it didn't have your typical uh, assortment of white folks riding off into the sunset. It was actually all the surviving minorities that ran off into the sunset there. And when you have the Syrian refugees working in this place that is like an idealized Western, but was previously run by all these white Swedes, you just got this weird disconnect between what we imagine Westerns to be and how that's reproduced and how we're still shoveling that that work onto minority immigrants. I thought that the end was a really chilling contrast in what the reality is living and working with these immigrants versus what our current idiot occupying our White House says about them. But uh, uh, they packed a lot of really interesting ideas in a sometimes unsettling package, especially where the soundtrack is concerned. I thought considering everything that's going on and our ongoing discussion on representation, it would be a good thing to chat about this week. See, this one kind of caught me off guard because we decided as a as a theme this month because you know, it's June, the weather's getting warmer, summer blockbuster season, that we were going to have fun with our selections and, you know, keep it light and loose. <laughs> so when you when, it, when I started this film and it was like, it had that Western setting, it's like, oh, all right, let's 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 see where this goes. And then quickly it dives into the series. Like, oh, wait, wait a minute. This is this is actually really serious. I, I will say that I really enjoyed this, this short. One of the things that I really liked about it was that you get the whole allure of Westerns or at least the way how America has presented Westerns and even the corral itself that all the show is taking place and the, the big cowboy. And then you get to the part where they start to focus in on some of the remaining refugees there. And one of them says when the cameras turn on them, he's like, oh, they're going to turn this into to lovable movie stars. Even though it was being sarcastic, it was a very interesting dig at, as you said, representation. Once you start to see that, well, no, things aren't all sugar and sweet for these refugees. They didn't necessarily want to be in Sweden. They didn't come for a vacation. They were forced out. Some of them, now that they're here, want to advance and learn the language, become productive members of society. But yet you've got this whole cultural backlash that's happening where most of the white people in Sweden that are protesting want them out. And you're seeing that these people are literally just trying to make a living. And the fact that it takes most refugees seven to nine years to even get work in Sweden, I thought that was really fascinating as well. So I, I really liked the way this film pushes and pulls your ideas of Western and Hollywood with the realities of what's going on in Syria. Yeah, and considering our overarching theme of uh, trying to have a little bit of fun, you know, it's fun for a little bit. So I guess I swerved you successfully. Yeah, there's, you know, there was that moment where um, one of the guys was talking about how work at that entertainment complex was like his first job in Sweden, and he's hoping that he'll eventually be able to get to go to the states where he can get a job there and eventually work in Hollywood. And then the next moment, he's like, "Well, got to go back to work," and you see him jumping off a building because he's like one of their best stuntmen, you know. And I thought that was a rather amusing moment in terms of just the way how that whole sequence played out. And it is a good film. There is entertaining moments to it, but it's one of those that you walk away thinking about the deeper. 
issues. The way that they're presented, especially where the soundtrack comes in, is aggressive and unsettling. And I like the contrast between that and the forced cheeriness they have to put on when the cameras are on them and then when they're actually working on the ranch itself. It almost sounds like the beginning of a Kanye track with the soundtrack at the beginning with the way that the drums kick in so aggressively. And then when a fake fight breaks out in the Western set, there's this high-pitched whine that just creeps into the soundtrack it reinforces just how false this front is that even though you know this guy said hey you know we'll take some folks in it does not match the reality of their experience they're not going to have an ideal frontier lifestyle what makes it really sad for me too is our idiot currently occupying our white house a few lines at the very end about the Syrian ban. You know, we're going to have a very, very strict ban. We don't want them here. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. It's telling of American general xenophobia and racism that that's what our idiot wanted to focus on. He wanted to focus on the negative and the violence. Instead of a story like we get with Return to High Chaparral, which already has its own complexity, but it's a lot easier for, I guess, people in general to understand a moment of violence or hate than it is to see how complicated trying to do the right thing can actually be. Getting people work, getting people fed, getting people sheltered. And I like that at the very beginning, the director, David Freed, he does a good job kind of hinting at that when uh, the, I think a Western historian's talking, he's like, we don't really think about what happens after the hero rides off. And it's a lot of work. It just seems like, I don't, I don't want to turn this into like a, um, assault on our media sort of thing, but, you know, representation is a problem. And even with, the way that the documentary tries to work with that and present this reality, it's just hard for people to live. It's always hard for people to live, but the refugees, they're thrown out, demonized, and even when they find somewhere that they could think of as safe, the problems don't end. And I just hate that that is what our idiot in the house has decided to focus on and a lot of people have decided to follow suit and that'll probably be as depressed as i get for today but the film just did a really good job invoking the complexity of just trying to do the right thing on top of all that definitely agree with that and the one thing i guess for me the last point I'll, that caught my attention was similar to that point where you were talking about when they showed the clip from trump about what happened last night in sweden two things really struck out one was trump's only been in office since i guess january and i remember when that whole sweden thing blew up it feels like that was ages ago because there's just been so much that's been going on in terms of media saturation with events that are occurring and unfolding in, in the White House. But it was more to Fried's point about Sweden might change, especially like the anti-Muslim rhetoric and the growing movement that's starting if America changes. Like uh, America is such a focal point for the rest of the world in terms of setting the standard and especially when it comes to embracing others. And I find that fascinating, especially when you consider America's turbulent history this time now more than ever, they really are kind of setting the standard. So it's a very interesting documentary, and it's one that will definitely leave you thinking about a lot of issues. And I guess on that note, 
of uh, seriousness, we're going to begin our gigantic upswing. And I think that your short is a great place to start with that. So why don't you tell us a bit about it? My film that I picked is called Boats, and it was directed by Justin Deck. It's a film that I thought would be perfect to kick off our kind of fun summer blockbuster month because it's set in a studio pitch session where the boss is trying to find what's the next movie product that they're going to release and his employees are pitching a film and they pitch an idea for Boats, which is basically a talking Boats movie. If you've seen ads for Cars 3, or if you have children like myself who are excited for things like Cars 3, this short film will probably speak to you. And it's all about how the art of filmmaking has been broken down into product placements. Instead of making a movie, you're making a franchise. And that's just essentially the way of the studio system right now. So especially with what was occurring in Con with the whole debate over Netflix and are they good or bad for the future of films? And when you're thinking of like the summer blockbuster season and past three number one movies have all been sequels, I thought that Boats was a good starting point for our summer fun session. It is a lot of fun. And before we, uh, I guess, get too deep into most of it, um, Parks and Recreation's Jerry, otherwise known as Jim O'Hare, who has a role here. I just got this weird sense that he would be great in kind of a drive-esque, dark supporting turn somewhere down the road because I was watching him cut his little aides down to humorous size. And I thought of Albert Brooks. And for some reason, I just want to see Jerry... I don't know, maybe slash a mechanic's wrists at some point. I guess now would be a good time to say your idea of summer fun may differ from my idea of summer fun. <laughs> but, but seeing a, uh, a homicidal Jerry would be kind of cool. To the rest of it, this was a lot of smart digs in a very short amount of time. The overall point that they've got about how things have moved on to franchising, we're starting with ideas that we can market instead of movies that are are great and then we can market them it's always been there in hollywood the big franchising of course didn't really start until the 70s but in terms of like making products that are supposed to appeal to a very specific kind of american consumer one of the biggest blockbuster successes that started in america was freaking the birth of a nation and then we have gone with the wind and those have a lot of troubling aspects to them that's why i love that the more or less reasonable guy because three white dudes a white lady and then an asian guy and the asian is the ostensible sensible one being that voice of reason throughout the meeting i love when he starts getting onto that heartfelt rant about the good old days when it was about selling the movie and one by one all of the vapid suck-ups around the room are like the racism misogyny hidden sexual references and the obvious dig at Disney and Pixar, it immediately made me think of how Disney has not released the Song of the South, which is infamously racist part of Disney history that is being locked away, rightly or no, we could have a discussion on that, but that's where zippity Doodah came from, and I like that with Boats here, it also takes a quick snap at current Pixar products, because 
I don't really like the DreamWorks characterization that, you know, all these movies are smart-ass characters with their eyebrows arched up, because a lot of Pixar's movies are basically, what if X can talk? And then they go from there, so we have to evaluate them on the craft instead of these individual bullet points that we could pick at. And I, I will say that, like, recently Pixar has gotten into a franchise slump that has not made a lot of their movies more enjoyable. Inside Out was great, but after that and slightly before that, like Toy Story 3, Cars 2, even Brave, they're all really uneven to bad. So I just love that the digs in boats work on so many levels. And if you don't like the uh, point of target for their criticism in their joking fashion at one point, just wait about 10, 15 seconds and they'll switch targets shortly. I think Toy Story 3 is great, but that's uh, a little <laughs> side point. Uh, but one of the things I, I loved about this was that the one minority character, Kevin Roo's Kevin Wu, uh, who was his name, Wright, which I also thought was very on the nose. Uh, <laughs> when, when he's coming up with all these great ideas and he's the sensible one and you really think about a lot of these films that are coming out, and especially when we talk about diversity, both in front of and behind the camera, the summer blockbusters are usually the one area where it seems diversity is pretty much tokenism. We've got the one female who's like the love interest and the one minority character who might crack some wise and or die early. Okay, that's good. Now let's get back to the standard. And there's a lot of digs in this short, like where there's a lot of sexist comments made to the lone female at the table, you know, talking about how adorable she is. And her ideas are always the cute ideas. I kept thinking, even though it's a spoof, I could still see this happening, where it'd be a boardroom of predominantly white men deciding what they think the next big thing is. Because a lot of times when you look at trailers for, uh, what was the Matt Damon film that came out this year? Uh, oh, was the Great, a great Wall. Great Wall, yeah. yeah. You look and you say, okay, it's it's set in Asia, the hero's the white male, and it's just a bunch of nondescript Asians in the background. Or if you think of like Gods of Egypt, where you barely see a person of color in that film, and you're thinking, there was no one in the room when they were pitching these films that was a visible minority. Or you think, wasn't there a female in the room that would say, hey, we need a stronger character than the girl that gets captured and needs to be saved? Of the many digs, I also like that Justin Deck was hitting those points as well. And that goes to show how smart a lot of the satire is here. Because one of the, the things I really like, the girl is uh, played by Clancy McClain. And I love the quick little shots of her getting a read on the room and then adjusting how she needs to present herself very quickly, like how she needs to respond more aggressively to the one guy who's way too much of a suck-up and then the other guy who is... A little bit of a suck-up, but he distances himself a bit. It was a way of presenting her as kind of like the smartest person in the room, completely aware of how everyone is reacting to her and trying to manipulate the surroundings and everyone's perception of her in a way that advanced her interests instead of anyone else's. And I love that Boats didn't really make too much of a point of that, because if this being a satirical backstage short film sort of thing, making too much hay out of that would have killed it but it worked it worked really well and when it did go over the top it was with that what like the uh boats aren't planes or boats aren't cars hip-hop 
ish song at the very end like just hip-hop enough to recognize it like that but still quote-unquote safe levels of hip-hop and that was when the overdrive worked well but it's that subtle stuff that is in between that really makes this work i'm glad that you brought that up because it's a perfect callback to a quick gag that happens earlier in the film that i thought was just a nice touch I don't know about you, but when they were pitching the plot for Boats, because they had the poster, but they didn't have a plot, even though they were already thinking like toys and Christmas holiday and Halloween special. But when they were pitching the actual plot, my mind instantly went to The Good Dinosaur, even <laughs> though it was uh, it was actually another film. And, was, and it really was like, wow, that that could have actually been several of those animated films. And even for the big live-action blockbusters, there's a lot of times where you look at the plot and you go, oh, well, this is essentially this other movie that they did four different times, and now you're just throwing it into a new franchise. Oh, okay. I, the, the originality is, is really lacking. Pixar, you know, they've been a bastion of originality in a lot of ways, but the reality is... They're another studio. They're going to have their ebbs and flows. And since we're in a capitalist society, they've got to make their money somehow. So the digs in this, very good. And while my short may not have been entirely in the summer fun vein, even if it kind of tricks you into thinking that, I thought that you made a really great pick here. Well, you know what? We're going to keep on with that gotta make your money somehow line (laughs) of thought. Before that, we're going to take a quick break to change reels, and then we'll come back with our feature film of the day. Our feature film today is the 2015 film Magic Mike XXL, the sequel to the 2012 film Magic Mike, uh, directed by Gregory Jacobs and featuring the cinematography by Mr. Steven Soderbergh. The film takes place three years after Mike has abandoned his life as a stripper. He's now running his own furniture business, and one day he gets a call that leads him to rejoin his former dance troupe for one last ride, and that ride takes him all the way down to Myrtle Beach for a strippers convention now andrew it's not bro time it's show time <laughs> why did you pick this film to discuss this week i want to be upfront to all of our listeners magic mike xxl is one of my favorite movies ever like if we get into this sometimes arbitrary distinction between best and favorite as if we need to prove some kind of artistic bona fides when we're talking about best and separating it from our favorites. I think Magic Mike XXL is smart as hell. It gets to the thesis or the whole philosophy behind our podcast, and it's kind of a how-to guide of embracing diversity and bringing that into our entertainment, and it's not diversity for diversity's sake. It's because those different perspectives and those different experiences can bring out something in all of us that can increase our joy collectively instead of just making some money or having a fling and tossing it aside. I've probably written about Magic Mike XXL more than I've written about any other movie on Can't Stop the Movies. It's informed by a lot of gay experimental movies. It's informed by classic feminist movies. Like, I could take any part of this and give you the past cinematic reference point that it's going for, but it's just a fun, good-natured movie to begin with. It's so smart in all of these other ways, but I love that it is about this motley assortment of guys who is stuck in these ruts and 
the way they get out of these ruts is realizing that this entertainment that they're providing, it isn't about themselves. It's about what those different experiences want when they see a performer. In this case, we've got our male strippers, sure, but you could broaden that to everything. And I think that's why Donald Glover's role is so brilliant. It's not just stripping. It's the art of making people feel important and empowered through music or dance or lighting or art, candy, whatever. Because I can rant about every aspect of Magic Mike XXL, I'm going to be relying on you a bit to reel me in if I get too far. But one big thing I want to also make clear up front is with all this idiocy I'm seeing on the internet about the Alamo Draft House's courtesy screening for women to have an opportunity to watch Wonder Woman in a theater filled with women and these morons who are like, oh, I'm being such a brave guy because I'm buying tickets. It's the antithesis of what Magic Mike XXL means to me. Like, this could be a nice educational film for those idiots because Magic Mike XXL is all about learning to expand the scope of our entertainment and include people that otherwise might not be. That is my preamble. Let's go ahead with your thoughts. Wow, that was the preamble. Hello. Can't wait, to, can't wait to see what comes up next. Um, I'll tell you this. When you said you wanted to do this film, and very enthusiastically so, I said, okay, I'd seen the first one. I enjoyed it, but it's not a film that I had thought about much since. And from strictly a stripper film perspective, I remember when the original came out and it was really sold as, hey, ladies, we finally got the film for you. A lot of females that I knew were not fans of the original. They were actually kind of disappointed because it wasn't that kind of sensational titillation for the ladies that they were expecting. It was pretty much just a bromance. This film was far better than the original. I have thought about this film a lot since I saw it, and part of it is because, as you said, it's a lot of fun. It's a great road trip kind of fun movie. It still carries that bromance aspect to it, but this one, I feel they really do put the women in the forefront. The portrayals of the, of the women in this film are more engaging and not just typically they're the love interest. Like I, I would say, if anything, Amber Heard is probably the weakest character in it. And I think that's just because of the nature of what her role is in terms of kind of flirting with that idea of a romance with Mike. Even the dance numbers and that final dance sequence, which we can get to in a bit, was just wonderful. One thing that I definitely want to jump off on what you were saying, though, was Donald Glover's role. And that one kind of surprised me because this film has a lot of cameos that I didn't expect. But the fact that you have Donald Glover in this film, especially when you're looking at just the physical body types that are being presented. And I'm not going to lie, I, I felt like doing some crunches after watching this film. <laughs> <laughs> Got a few love handles that are, are clearly not magic Mike approves, so I have to get back into that uh, routine. But the idea that you have him in here and his role is to be the singer, the entertainer, and ask the women what they want. You know, create a song specifically for them based on their wants and their needs. And I didn't even think about this film in relation to the Alamo Draft House, but I think that's a perfect connection. Like that, I think that's a great point that you just made because too often when it comes to art, 
culture, especially from a male perspective, we have so much advantages and yet we always want more. We want Thelma and Louise to have a strong male character. You know, why aren't there more men in that? Wonder Woman, oh, well, why can't there be more Superman or Batman in Wonder Woman? The fact that it took Wonder Woman this long to even come out says a lot. You know, And then when it does come out, we saw this with Ghostbusters, a lot of instant hatred and controversy, and people are not willing to expand themselves if they don't see themselves included. But half the time, or the majority of the time, they see themselves everywhere. You know, a lot of the males that are complaining about the draft house are the same ones that get catered to every single week in the theater. So when I saw that, oh, they're doing a woman-only screening of Wonder Woman, I thought, that's fantastic. Why did we have to wait till 2017 for stuff like that to happen? But I don't know. I, I really like this film, and I think this one kind of caught me off guard because I was just hoping it would be at least entertaining, but I wasn't expecting it to be as entertaining as it is. Well, I'm going to use your Donald Glover thing as an anchor so that I don't launch myself off into the sea of my love for this movie. But before I do that... Your love handles, man, I think if there's anything that we can take from Magic Mike XXL is that no matter how much baggage you're carrying, someone out there is for you. And that's the beautiful part of Donald Glover's scene because that takes place in what, for me, is the centerpiece of Magic Mike XXL. It's about 10 minutes long of Mike and his crew going through Rome's pleasure house. One of the things that I love is that Magic Mike XXL keeps going back to this idea of consent in entertainment. When Rome has her big speech at the end, before she starts calling everyone queens, she asks them, is it all right if I call you all queens? And what we get in that pleasure sequence is this safe space for consent on everyone's fantasy. I love that the first dance part in the Rome Pleasure Palace sequence is this larger black woman being doted on and worshipped by this muscular Adonis black guy and he's got just these amazing like little gold shorts on while some dude in a thong is doing backflips in the other room. It's all about making sure that these women feel safe to engage in their fantasy for a little bit and it does not hurt that every part of the Rome Pleasure Palace sequence is shot beautifully. You could see a lot of pariah in the way that Steven Soderbergh did the cinematography here with all the deep purples and pinks and reds. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah, and my favorite part of that is when the fully dressed guy comes out and the low start of Sex You by Bando Jones comes in and he's just twerking and popping little bits of his body and when the song builds to that, I was raised in Atlanta and they treated me like a pimp or something like that and he's just grooving along with it before he gets to this one woman after he's stripped down to his underwear there's this quick exchange very quick because he puts her hand down his pants it makes sure that it's in a safe and consenting space like this oh my god is this happening okay this is happening for a moment the mix of the music and the dude's movements is phenomenal so that when you get to the donald glover part it would seem out of place if it didn't build on this idea of making the entertainment that you present diversified. It's not just a beef and candy show. When Donald Glover comes down, that beautiful red lighting is on him. He sits Caroline down, giving her some small talk, asking her what she likes, what she wants, and you get that great long shot 
with the white lights behind him and he looks like a damn angel before he starts singing like these wings of light around him he just got that beautiful beautiful rhythm and he isn't making it entirely about her he asks the crowd to get in it's like everyone let's all make this woman feel better about herself and just celebrate her. I, I could do this with every scene, but I think that the Rome Pleasure Palace, especially with Jada Pinkett Smith's just commanding presence from start to finish, because she knows how to turn it on. I love how controlling she is of Mike when he comes into the room. She takes what she wants when she's got what she wants. She pushes him away, making sure that there is no ambiguity about who is in charge in this building and what she's trying to do. And it just flows so damn well. I don't know if there's another sequence that did that for you, what that does for me, but the Pleasure Palace for me is like, it's just cinematic heaven. I like the final set piece just in terms of how it was constructed, but the real heart of the film is the Pleasure Palace, and partly because you have the guys coming into a situation where the audience is predominantly black, and even the entertainment is predominantly black, and you don't have that moment where they come in as the all right, we're going to show you a thing or two. Mike is asked to prove himself, and not just that he has talent, but he is willing to put in the work that these women need. Even when he has his moment to show that he still has it, you never feel like he's upstaging any of the performers there. He's showing that he can hang on their level. Any other film, they would have come in, there would have been maybe, whatever, a dance-off between them, and it's like, oh, you guys got respect, you, you, know, you guys are really great. And this one, they walk away learning from all of Rome's people. Without Rome, they don't even survive Myrtle Beach because every they're <laughs> yeah, they're old true. they're old tactics. Even they're coming up with new routines on the fly. It would be nothing. Like Mike's big set piece is a mirror image to one of Rome's dancers. That was such a well done thing because you would have thought he's the star. He's going to be him on the stage with Amber Heard or whatever girl and he's doing all this stuff. It's like, no, he has to share that stage because it's not about him. It's about the millions of women that are or probably thousands of women that are <laughs> at that that hall. And it's all about them. And that's what I like. I thought Jada Pinkett Smith was fantastic in this film. And there's times when I'm watching her in this film and I'm thinking back to I don't know, back in the day when she did like Jason's lyric and whatnot. I was like, man, I, I kind of wish she was in even, even more films. You put her in the right role and she will kill it. And she definitely kills it here. I adore how commanding she is. And I love the point that you made about how maybe not in a lesser movie, but in a different movie, it'd be an adversarial dance off to conclude things. And that'll be more for a pick that I've actually got later on in our month of fun. But for now, I was not expecting the first time I watched this for the ultimate dance to be with two dudes named Mike. You have, of course, the magic Mike of the previous and then the Mike that they pick up from Rome's Pleasure Palace reenacting what's basically basically a sexy Marx Brothers routine to great music. Have I mentioned that I love the soundtrack of this movie? Because I freaking love the soundtrack. And it gets to that conversation, too, about this back and forth of what all these men can learn and incorporate but not take over. You get that section right after the Pleasure Palace when they're all sitting down and they're basically just talking shop. Pure Sin comes on the soundtrack and it cuts out completely when it's time to focus on Rome and Mike, so for their conversation. The big thing I also want to kind of spin off to is, you had a slip of the tongue, but I think it's important when you're talking about the millions of women in attendance. This movie is geared towards both pleasing women, but then also teaching men to be less 
dicks. Because the next big sequence that comes after the Pleasure Palace is with the similarly amazing Andy McDowell as Nancy, who basically gets just the one scene. But she owns the hell out of it. Much like you said that we rarely get to see that kind of positive sexualization of black men and women, older folks get way left behind. All these women, they clearly have some years behind them, but they've got this fire. It's this quiet conversation that is a little less impactful for me than the Rome sequence, but it's about acknowledging these women, their desires, their dreams, they never completely go away. I like that the lessons of the Rome Pleasure Palace fuel what happens in that scene when Ken, who's played by Matt Bomer, he has genuine surprise in his face when one of the women says that her husband won't have sex with her with the lights on. I can't think that he would have had that reaction if it wasn't for this ongoing conversation about listening to women or just listening to people who aren't you, who don't look and sound and act like you. That other beautiful moment where he sits down and serenades her with heaven and she's kind of on the edge of maybe going the divorce route that Andy McDowell's friends have already gone through but it's a different example and it's more in line with Donald Glover what he's doing as Andre in the movie you know they have that little conversation in the van too about their jobs as entertainers and how that can be a healing thing and you could see that as egotistical sure but there's an element of truth to that when it comes to our entertainment and that's also why I think that the parallels what's going on in Magic Mike XXL and the Alamo Draft House women only showing are important people take a lot from this entertainment when we finally have a movie like Magic Mike XXL that expands the nature of that audience and knows what that audience is going to want, it builds into something beautiful. To just jump off that point with the whole Nancy scene, one of the things I liked about that scene in particular is that when you first meet Nancy and her friends, you think, oh, this is going to be the wild, crazy, drunk women scene where, you know, they go in and be the macho guys and get the older women. And there's a subtle role reverser in terms of how the genders are portrayed. What I just described is probably what would happen in a lot of other films. But in this one, the guys kind of go in a little bashful. They don't really want to say they're strippers because the girl's mom, they don't want to talk about that. And the women come out even when they're like calling them ma'am and stuff don't <laughs> yeah. who, who do you think you're talking to we are women who are comfortable with our sexuality we've been around and andy mcdowell's nancy at one point she's like you know i tell my daughters keep playing the field until you find that one that really knocks your socks off but don't stop until you, you find that one and there's that nice subtle part where you have a guy like Tarzan, who's the oldest of the men, and he's thinking, I wish I just had that one woman that was there for me and possibly kids. And that's something that you wouldn't normally get from this type of film, right? Like, if this was striptease or, well, I guess Showgirls to a certain extent, but that's a whole other, <laughs> yeah, a Showgirls whole is its own kind of special <laughs> satirical realm. But you would have that older female character that just wish I could have found that one guy. And you wouldn't expect that from the male point of view. And I, what I love about this scene is at the end of it, we know that at least 
thinks Nancy hooks up with Richie, and we're not sure about what the other women are doing, but you walk away from that scene appreciating Nancy and her friends. They're not the drunk, rich, I don't want to say bimbos, or, but you know, that's what they would have been in any other film. And it's, where it's here, they're smart, they're confident, they're sexy women who are in control of their own sexuality. Yeah, they have some disappointments, they've had some bad luck with men, but I never walked away thinking that, oh, these are victims or sad sacks. You know, they were confident to the point where the men, the guys who take their clothes off for a living, feel bashful around them, almost feel inadequate in their presence. It's the nature of that inadequacy that also flips a lot of stereotypes on its head, because Richie, let's give him the respect he deserves. His name is Big Dick Richie. And for those who watched Magic Mike, I think one of my least favorite shots in that was actually the silhouette of his namesake flopping out, because they never went anywhere with it. I cannot imagine another movie out there where they actually talk about how having a gigantic penis worthy of the name Big Dick Richie is a hindrance. Because you get that kind of vulnerable scene at the very beginning when Richie is lamenting the fact that he hasn't had sex in a long time. Because women see that and they're like, ooh... How about a hand job instead? And I love that there isn't any bragging the morning after. There's a lot of knowing glances and Andy McDowell's little sigh or little moan when she kisses Richie goodbye is one of my favorite tiny moments because you can see her replaying the night in her head. And when we would get what we'd call locker room talk, it's just Big Dick Richie happy that he found someone who he respects, who respects him back, and that they were able to share this moment, and that at the end of the scene, it's still not about them. It's not about Richie giving this big story about this great night they had together. They pad over that, and the most important thing is that little moan that Andy McDowell gives before she goes off screen. It's in a movie that's filled with so many big gestures and big moments. It's little stuff like that that keep me coming back to it again and again. They incorporate a nice amount of humor throughout this film, like the scene where Richie has to practice a new routine. They dare him to break out of his shell, and I forget, was it the, the cowboy routine? There's some, there's some routine that's like he's... Fireman, because Big the fireman. he's scared of fire. And that one always kills. It's the same one he does, he's been doing year after year, and they challenge him to create a new routine and just kind of go with it at this little gas station pit stop. And, and it's a really amusing moment where you see a lot of the characters that don't take themselves too seriously throughout but when you mentioned the non-traditional quote-unquote locker room talk that's one of the things that struck me about this from from the very beginning even when they were i guess at the little bonfire the beach and talking about different ideas and stuff they don't really delve too much into the bragging like even when mike meets amber heard for the first time it's not like he goes back to the boys and you know they rib him none of that happens and it's just them talking about relationships and emotions in, a, in an honest way they're getting older i guess they've got past that childish aspect of their lives so i don't know I, I just found that was really intriguing especially when you have an early scene where they go to a drag bar. And I love that part. I love everything, up, but I do love that part. Yeah, they, but they get up 
on stage. And it's not in an insulting way. They know where they are, and they're basically trying to compete with each other, knowing full well that they're also competing with all these other drag performers for whatever the cash prize was. It's done in a, such a sincere way, and I think that also helps set the tone for the rest of the film, where you get this sense that you know these guys are genuine people who happen to take their clothes off for a living outside of Mike, because he's got a new profession, but it's not about them being braggadocious. All that type of machismo that you got in the first film, or at least that I got off from the first film, is gone in this one. I think that goes to what you were saying a little earlier, and I like the comparison here, because Showgirls is extremely satirical. You, you mentioned that Magic Mike XXL is very much not in that realm. It has that sincerity throughout that keeps Magic Mike XXL so wonderful, because that drag performer sequence, I know Gabriel Iglesias' character, he ends up winning by uh, going for, like a, I think, a Rita Moreno, pineapple on the head, cha-cha-cha sort of thing, but... My favorite is the dead serious Kevin Nash walk where he flips out an imaginary compact so that he can put on imaginary lipstick and then just flips it back with such authority that he's owning himself in that moment. He's taking the competition seriously. It's not a joke. It's fun, but it's not a joke. It's not making fun of these people dancing on stage and so on. When we're talking also about that healthy sense of fun is the campfire scene that happens right afterward. Mike and Amber Heard's character, Zoe, they have a little interlude, but the way it's lit makes it so that they're clearly not seeing eye to eye. They're just these beautiful silhouettes against each other in the background, misunderstanding what one and another wants. And Ken, who has some beef with Mike, when they finally sit back down at the fire, Mike says, go ahead and get it out of your system. Hit me, and it'll be great. Ken does it, and they ask him, you know, are you feeling better now? And Ken says no. Again, when we talk about flipping script and movie conventions on their head, that's like the quiet man moment where you would have John Wayne getting into a brawl with somebody and they have begrudging respect and they go and have some whiskey and such. And sure, that works as a nice little bit of entertainment. Magic Mike XXL is much smarter than that. It realizes that a simple punch physically taking out your disappointment or your anger on somebody is just going to lead to more of the same. As a little microcosm of a healthy lesson to teach other men, that's great. You can't punch out your problems. That resentment is still going to be there. It speaks to the pacing of Magic Mike XXL, too, because Soderbergh did the editing and my favorite little editing joke here was when they all take the ecstasy and then it goes, to, it cuts to like 57 minutes later and they're all freaking out trying to figure out new ideas for themselves. But these little philosophical interludes, I think is going to be a good way of putting it. They don't outstay their welcome. They hit their points. They don't hit them in an obvious way, but they hit them quickly and beautifully so that the point is made and then it's time to move on. It's time to hit back the road for the rest of the road trip. The the road trip itself has a lot of classic comedic pratfalls, but when they have that bonding moment where they're all closing their eyes and becoming one spiritually, which is just a bad idea if you're driving a Froyo truck on, <laughs> on, any, on any road. But I like that they interspersed moments like that, because as with every road trip film, you need to have problems where will they or won't they get to the event. And the event almost feels secondary. As they're going, every stop that they hit, 
I would have been fine if the, the film ended there. When they hit Rome's place, I'm like, I'd be happy if the movie ends there. When they hit Nancy's house, I'm perfectly fine if that's where they want to end the film because each little nugget works so well. It's so compact. When you look at it as a whole, yes, it plays smoothly, it clips by, but you could take any moment, watch the sequence play out and leave with a smile on your face while still feeling that you got something from those characters. That's why the whole ending sequence, uh, the series of dances that everyone gets when they've learned their lessons and now they're incorporating them in their routine, it feels more like a victory lap than anything else because all the big points have been made and they're sometimes ostentatious, sometimes simple way. And this is an opportunity for us to see the epilogue of their trip putting everything into practice in a movie that has a lot of fun characters and a lot of insightful moments joe mangianello who plays big dick richie he just hits a comedic streak with every single one of his scenes while i love the convenience store scene the shift at the end when he presents himself so prim and proper while donald glover sings i think i want to marry you and when he finally goes all out with the girl and it switches to nine inch nails is closer and the red lights come on and his movements suddenly become a lot more direct as he's stripping himself off into the leather that for me is my highlight of the final dances and it builds again on that idea of consent in the fantasy because it's a stereotype that all girls want to settle down less accepted is that they may be and more and frequently are dirtier than the men in their minds they just aren't allowed to express it and i love that sequence because it's best of both worlds you get your nice clean cut boy next door fantasy and then the Time for Leather and Chains part, and just the lights and the song coming in, so good. So do you have, uh, I guess, a favorite of that whole final sequence? I would probably say the Richie one, but I think part of it is, and it's a very, very brief moment. When he's doing the whole pixel girl up, and then they walk down the aisle, and Rome is playing the officiant when they get married, there's a look on her face, that kind of fake surprise of, oh my gosh, you got married, congratulations, that is perfect for the comedic timing. There are parts of the dual mics final scene, just from like an acrobatic standpoint, that I thought was pretty well done as well. Because I kept thinking, like, how long would it have taken to choreograph that and rehearse, rehearse, rehearse? Because they are pretty much in sync from the minute the music starts. So it's a, it's, it's if I could split them in half, I would say like the first part of the Richie one, just like for the comedic aspect. But in terms of the actual dancing, and if you want to say like the, the red light part of the dancing, then it would be the latter half of the mic performance. If anyone wants to see some examples of exactly how well choreographed the two mics are at the end, I actually made some gifs. Or jives, I don't care how you pronounce it, but I pronounce it gifts. They're perfectly in sync the entire time, from the opening twist as they're getting their shirts off to the very end when they high-five each other through the mirror. I love that spot. Now, I've been pretty over the top with my praise this entire time because i love the movie this much but there is one thing that i wish magic mike xxl was able to do a little better and that has to do with tito he doesn't get that big moment or even that small moment that everyone else does ken gets to sing heaven big dick richie gets the convenience store scene tarzan and it's funny that no one really knows his name is Ernest. Tarzan gets that small speech where he wants to settle down. Tito doesn't really get a good 
character beat moment. So when he comes on and it's this kind of stereotypical candy and whipped cream thing, I still enjoy it, but it's not as impactful as all the other dances. So I do wish that they could have done Tito right the same way they did everyone else. But for me, it's a minor quibble in a movie that has so many ups. I definitely agree with that. He is the one character where even thinking back, I was like, wait, what was his final thing? Oh, right. The candy, right? (laughs) And then wasn't there something with him and a girl? Yeah, he doesn't really have much. He's, He's kind of there. And I agree. They could have utilized him a lot better. For what it is, it's still an entertaining film. And the the funny thing is when I got this film from the library, I didn't realize when I hopped on the library system to reserve it, there was so many copies. So apparently (laughs) in my area, Magic Mike XXL is a very hot property in the local library system. And then the funny thing is after watching it, the library DVD, it popped on Netflix like the next day. So (laughs) clearly there was some sign of saying that no matter what, you've got to see this film. So I will let the movie forces guide me, and I will agree that this was very entertaining, and I'm actually very happy you selected it because I can see myself watching this again. Oh, dude, I've easily hit double digits at this point. High Fidelity used to be the movie I would put on in the background when I was cleaning or doing laundry or whatever. It's still a great movie, but going back and watching... I actually had to just watch parts of Magic Mike XXL in preparation for this, because like I said, I've seen it double-digit times, I've written a lot about it. Even watching the individual scenes that I really wanted to focus on, I got so overwhelmingly happy. I think for my part, to kind of close on another related story, my family had a lot of interesting looks and quick comments when I was telling them how much I loved Magic Mike XXL, and I think I kind of... uh surprised my cousin a bit because she was happy about the pony dance and I started talking about so many things from Magic Mike XXL and so on and she was kind of like oh that's uh that's nice Andrew like I was finally revealing an aspect of myself to the family that they had no idea about my littlest brother he sat down to watch it he said he was really surprised about how much he enjoyed it and that he was enjoying it in kind of an ironic sense I cut him off because I'm also going to make this point to our listeners you don't have to like something ironically or think that it's the butt of a joke magic mike xxl is not like a death serious movie and i think that's one of the things that hamstrung the original magic mike it takes itself seriously in the sense that it understands what these characters want what they can bring to other people and the importance of diversity in that entertainment so don't go into the mindset of watching something like this ironically do what I did and what Courtney did, and if you haven't seen this, kudos for making it this far, first of all. But secondly, it's just a blast. Just have some fun and don't think that there is a joke to be in on. You just get to watch people who are decent become better because of their surroundings and their experiences, and we get to take in and all that fun in the meantime. 
I think that's a perfect note to end on. I couldn't have said that better myself. Andrew, where can people find you? Well, um, you can hit me up on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. I also monitor the Gmail accounts um, at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. My own little plug here at the very end, by the time this goes out, I will have set up the Patreon for my own website, Can't Stop the Movies. So please visit Can't Stop the Movies if you feel like helping me out. It would be great. I want to make this work as a living, so please give me a look-see if you want to help out there. Super. Courtney, how about yourself? They can reach me at at SmallMind on Twitter and also reach out to us at the Changing Reels Twitter account, which is Changing Reels AC. And I'll throw in one last plug for myself. I was recently on the show Frameline again, talking about the Inside Out Festival. And then listeners who are familiar with our show know that last month we did our tribute to LGBT cinema, and we'll definitely be talking about more of those films as we go on. But the Inside Out Film Festival, probably I guess it would be wrapping up by the time this goes live. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode of Frameline, and you can hear, I think, the three films that we discussed on that show. Cool, and I'll make sure I also include the writing I've done on Magic Mike XXL, because like I said, I've written a lot about it. I freaking love this movie, folks. <laughs> so for Change of Girls, I'm Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 